0: It's been a week where I have um, walked alongside and been part of various circumstances and situations in the church, congregational, uh, church members, family members who are going through uh, significant difficulty and challenge, especially around health. I uh, visited, uh, many of you know, Tim and Corey Wetherill. They usually sit around about over there. I um, visited Tim on Tuesday, and then in hospital on Friday, he uh, has um, skin cancer inside of his mouth, and so the uh, the surgery was on Friday, and he's doing very well. But we do need to pray as he continues recovery. David Marshall is in is in hospital right now, and uh, I'll be visiting him this afternoon, and um, and I think about Tracy as well, Tracy Sock, who's struggling, and. And then uh, Albert and Karen Schrick, many of you know, Ka- Albert went uh, to be with the Lord very suddenly at the beginning of the last week, um, while well, they were on holiday in Palm Springs. And and then I think about uh, Ian Sharp, who's been to this church, very involved in the, uh, uh, visited this church, very involved in Child of Mine at KCS, his sister, uh, who's 40, little children. Um, I, d- I don't know exactly what it was, but something with her heart, and she collapsed in a, washroom and a restaurant and unfortunately wasn't found and ended up having the circulation to her brain um, for 25 minutes wasn't there and so unfortunately they ended up having to switch machine off on Wednesday I believe Scott was it oh boy what where would you even begin with this um, and I preached last week as we pulled the series to a close on the Lord's Prayer and I talked about how we desperately need God in those moments, in those times, in those challenges uh, that just come. You know, and, we, and I showed you a bit of a video from a famous actor who said, a you know, very ardent atheist, and I've shown it a number of times uh, that he said that life is cleaner, purer, more worth living. I think he said, if you take God out of the equation with all these challenges that are around us. And, and it's really been on my mind this week. And as I came to the Lord to seek him as to what I should share, um, as we're coming up to Easter, I, I really felt this passage come to my mind. And then my first reading of it, I was like, Lord, I'm not seeing Easter. Um, in this, but then as I started to study through the lens of some of the things that have been going on in the church, I became so aware that we all come, some of us stumbling in because of the week or the times and the challenges that we are facing, some of us come leaping in because God is just being so, and life is being so good right now, and then I stand before you and and then I present a word that in some way uh, I'm prayerful will connect with you regardless of where you're at. And, um, but you see, Jesus, and, and especially this time of year, is, is given so much focus because of Easter. And yet there's so much confusion around who Jesus is, why did he come, what relevance is Jesus and, and God in our present society. And so what I want to focus on this morning as I'm thinking about the challenges, but also thinking about Easter, is I want to focus on Jesus and his power, Jesus and his mission. And so I have, I have a, a scripture to share with you. I'd love for you to turn to it, if you have it with you, uh, in Mark chapter four and verse thirty-five, and uh, we did a study in Mark a year or so ago, maybe it was even more, um, and, uh, and Mark's writing and the way he writes is very different and significant. Um, but let's let's read Mark chapter four, verse thirty-five. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35, it says like this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And after leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? I have four points this morning. Number one, we're going to look at detailed power detail power, number two, higher power, number three, uncontrollable power, and number four, costly power. My prayer is this morning is you will leave this place having been reminded of the significant power that Jesus has in our lives now, just as much as it was then. We're going to look at whether or not we can take this story as being authentic, whether we can take this story literally or whether we should look at it symbolically or whether it is a legend, uh, whether it's truth at all. But at the end, I want you to see that Jesus is an uncontrollable, costly, higher, detailed power in our lives. So number one, let's jump in. We've got quite a bit of work to do. Number one, detailed power. Look at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, so here's what I want us to do as we look at this. And I've highlighted the, the words as we go. I want you to notice the detail that Mark goes into. On that day when evening had come. So he gives us a time of the day. He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So Jesus didn't say, hey, you know what? Let me just go and grab a few bits and pieces before we go to the other side. It was like, let's just go straight away. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. So for us to really understand why I've used the point detailed power, we need to have a bit of clarity as to what writing was like in ancient Times. Notice that Mark goes into great detail about the situation. He gives us the time of the day. He tells us whether or not Jesus goes back or whether he just stays in the boat just as he was. He also gives us a scenario as other boats were with him. And then he goes into greater details and tells us whereabouts in the boat Jesus was asleep and what he was sleeping on. So there's a lot of detail there and, and you, you, that would be quite expected when it comes to telling any kind of story, especially our kind of writing. But these details actually prove to us that this account actually happened. So when you talk to somebody in our culture about Jesus, and maybe this is you this morning, you're unsure about whether or not to believe in God and believe in Jesus because you're unsure of this. You believe that Jesus was a good guy, but you also, in the back of your mind, maybe you've read somewhere or discussed or even studied the idea that this was compiled by a church that wanted to control people. And so this is really just, especially the New Testament, you might be able to accept that the Old Testament is historical, and and even though you might have difficulty with some of the supernatural aspects of it, the New Testament, lots of people in our culture will believe, were compiled by a controlling church, their lies and legends, in order to keep a group of people who at that time weren't able to read just under their power. The problem with that theory, and you may even still think that today, the problem with that is the Gospels themselves, because the Gospels are incredibly detailed, number one, and secondly, were written within a generation, or even smaller than a generation, of when Jesus was actually alive. But the details are what I want us to think about this morning. Now, I'm no literary expert, but I have access to people who are. Praise the Lord for Google, common grace right there. And so you can actually quickly find out that literary scholars will say that this account does not fit in with fiction or legends of its time. And the reason for that is this, the details. Now, when we, watch a, when we read a book, a fiction book or a, or, a, or a movie, we'll expect details. Details add to the story. They push a narrative along. They give, they give uh, credence to the story because we can actually put ourselves into the story. But you need to understand that that style of fictional writing is a very modern style of fictional writing. Fictional writing at the ancient times, over 2,000 years ago, were very blunt. They would not include details that, because they didn't see that it moved the story on. Jesus being in the stern, asleep on the cushion, doesn't add anything to the story. So this fits very much into an eyewitness account. See, eyewitness accounts written from memory did include detail at that time. So we have a choice Please, please, please hear me on this. Either Mark, who's the writer of this gospel, jumped ahead 2,000 years and started to write in a style that didn't appear for another 2,000 years, and nor was there ever any precedent before him. Either he just started writing fictional writing in a completely different style for his generation and for thousands of years, or this is an eyewitness memory account. So maybe you're okay with that. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe those people kind of made that up. Maybe they've just made it sound like an eyewitness. The interesting thing is, though, if you actually study the New Testament, you'll see times and times again where the people who had every reason to want to destroy the story of Jesus being the Son of God did not bring evidence contrary to that which the disciples were bringing. Let me give you an example, I won't turn there now, but in Acts chapter 4, there's this, there's this scene where the leaders, the church who hated Jesus, hated what was going on in the new church with Peter and, and, and the disciples, they had every reason to destroy the faith. And you can read the sermon of Peter and then he's brought before the leadership. And there's this really interesting statement after Peter talks about Jesus' life, his miracles, his resurrection, the people that were affected. Jesus says, uh, Peter says all this. And then it says in Acts chapter 4 that the leaders had, quote, nothing to say in opposition. Now, you might not think that's significant. But do you not think that they would have a whole lineup of people witnesses to say, that didn't happen, I was there, nope, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. In fact, it says in that in, in the, after Jesus uh, rose again that, that hundreds of people saw Jesus, but the leadership, the people who had a vested interest in destroying this story, as highlighting this whole thing as a lie, had nothing to say in opposition. Why? Because they saw it. They saw it. They were witnesses too. They saw these things happen. So as a Christian, I can be confident in the scriptures, not just because they were written very close to when it happened, but I can be confident in the style. Even as a non-Christian literary scholar would say, this is unusual. This reads like an eyewitness account, not a story of fiction. I have to take notice of that. You have to take notice of that you either have to say, nah, still don't believe, which is incredibly arrogant, just being honest, or you have to go, well, what do I do with this? See, fictional writing at that time did not include details like fiction does now. And so this is power that happened in the real world, in real time, in real history. It's one or the other. You either have to go, no, absolute nonsense and go against what the kind of weight of evidence says, or you have to go, this happened. If this happened, if this story happened, we need to listen. If this story happened, it would be the height of foolishness to walk away and go, nah, you know, has no effect. So there is power in the details. There's power in the details. Number two, there's power in the details And it displays a higher power. So as we come towards Easter, I highly recommend that you read the Gospels and Hebrews and some of the accounts when it talks about the power and the significance of the crucifixion. And you need to take note of the details. You need to do some research. Even, and I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but the fact that Jesus chose a woman at that time to be his first evangelist, if you like, is mind blowing. Because they believed in that culture anything that a woman had to say was a lie just by the fact that she was a woman. Whereas Jesus lifts up the woman, lifts up females and says no. Actually shows that which the whole scripture talks about the dignity of all mankind, the imago day, and chooses a lady to go and speak to the rest of the disciples about him rising. Why would that be included in a lie that was, that was written in order to try and sway people at that time? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So you need to read the scriptures, not just watch YouTube videos about the scriptures that people are trying to undermine all the time. But number two, the higher power, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, some of you may have boats, and I don't know if you've been on the lake in a windstorm. We used to own a boat and we have had a couple of times where the boat was actually filling up with water. I think it was more about my lack of nautical ability uh, rather than the, you know, the the windstorm was pretty, pretty, you know, it was cresting, but it was nothing compared to what these disciples were experiencing at this time because Galilee was situated very, it was very low under sea level next to uh, mountains that are very high. So the warm air and the cold air would, would come together and they would have vicious, Crazy hurricane-force storms at times. So I looked for a good storm image. Because, uh, you know, I remember as a, as a teenager being in, in a, uh, a gale force 9, crossing from England to, um, to uh, Bruges, and we were on a ferry, and it's normally like a, a few hours, and the captain actually came over and said that there's a gale coming, force 9 gale. That's bad. The sea—I wouldn't say it looked like that, but it was—it was awful. You could hear the propellers coming out of the back of the boat as it's as it's being lifted. You could feel the the kind of the gap in you're up in the air, and then it slams down. It was awful. And it, only that journey actually happened just a few weeks after the Zabrugge, um disaster, where hundreds of people were killed, and you could actually see. We went past the boat upturned another ferry upside down where people had died and you know you imagine all the teenagers freaking out and I was one of them but there is nothing as powerful and as vicious as a storm at sea I mean I'm not even sure whether that's an artist's impression but I I would, I would I'm going to guess that's a pretty good depiction of what it's like but you know you need to understand that this storm was happening with Jesus in the boat with disciples who were fishermen And this boat is already filling up with water. And it says in verse 38, And he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him. Who's they? They're the disciples, including some of the fishermen. They would have been well used to this kind of storm in Galilee. This wouldn't have been a shock to them. But what my point is, is this. This must have been bad. How do we know? Because it says this. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Not that we might perish, not that we think we're going to perish, but we are actually dying right now, Jesus. Do you not care? And these are by sea, uh, sorry, fishermen who would have been used to this kind of water. And Jesus comes up and he says two remarkable things happen straight after this. The first one is this, Jesus' simple words. Verse 39 And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The simplicity of his words. What I love is what Jesus didn't do. He didn't have this kind of titanic moment. You know, he could have he could have braced himself at the front of the boat with his with the wind filling his hair. This dramatic moment, and he said, "In the name of the Lord, you know, and be still." And the, it's just this: hey, be still, calm down. It stops. I love how simple it is to him. It's nothing to Jesus. He's asleep in the boat on a cushion, apparently. I don't know if it was a big beanbag or a little cushion. It doesn't matter the fact that he is in the boat asleep with this turmoil that people are running around thinking they are going to die. Jesus is asleep and he wakes up and he says simple words. How do we know that's the only thing he said? Well, there are many, many times in the scriptures where Jesus goes into great detail. But if this time it's peace, be still. And then the second amazing thing is, the way of simple obedience just happens. You know, there's no fuss. Verse 39, peace, be still, and there were the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So when I've tried to teach you over the years that we need to think about why the Scripture says what it says. So why does it say wind ceased and there was a great calm? Isn't it enough just to say wind ceased? Well, you could say that's just a coincidence. You know, it is theoretically possible for you to stand up on a boat in the middle of the Okanagan with the wind in your hair, and you could go, and you could say, be still. And the, theoretically, the wind could drop. Coincidentally, and how cool would that be? And I'm sure some of you have had the experience where you've prayed that the rain would stop for a particular thing or a particular event, and it stops. And people go, well, it's weather systems. You know, it's not God. Come on. But you see what's really impressive is not that the, the wind stopped, it's what comes next, the great calm. in the original, in the Greek, that literally means mega calm. It means dead calm. You know that that calmness where it's just like glass. <clears throat> I don't know if I have a picture. I can't remember. did I put a picture of this in? Or just the, just the just the water I don't know if you've ever seen it where you can just see it's just still. So, why is that remarkable? Because when there's a storm, thank you, when there's a storm or where there's turmoil and the wind is churning the sea, it can take hours, if not days, for the sea to find its calm again. But in this situation, it happens immediately. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. Not just that the wind stops, but the sea stops. It's just, there's great calm. Why is this significant? So again, in ancient culture, there was nothing more uncontrollable as the sea. The sea represented an uncontrollable power. And the only thing that the ancient cultures believed had control over power were the the God or the gods, small g. So Jesus was making a profound statement When the sea calms and the wind drops, what he's actually declaring by saying those three words, he's saying that only God has the power to control the sea, and here's Jesus exercising it. Uncontrollable power. Two words, calmly spoken. Over the sea, wind stops, dead calm. Can you imagine what the disciples must have thought? And he didn't call on a higher power. So here's where it starts getting very, very particular to you and me. Jesus didn't call on a higher power. Not like the Old Testament prophets who would call upon the name of the Lord. He didn't call upon a higher power because He is the higher power. He is the higher power right there in that boat. He doesn't need to call upon it because He is the higher power. I am who I am. So this caused me to ask some questions what has uncontrollable power in our lives today in your life right now what feels like an uncontrollable storm an uncontrollable power where you feel like the disciples that the boat is filling and you just feel like there's nothing I can do. I've, I've tried to bail out as quick as I can. I've tried everything I possibly can. But the boat still seems to be sinking. And you have called upon a higher power. Only sometimes to forget that the higher power is in the storm right with you. Because if Jesus is who He says He is, and has the power He says He has, and the eyewitnesses said He has, then now we have meaning, we have hope, we have security, and we have unending power at our disposal. If Jesus isn't who He said He is, and He doesn't have any power, and He's just some good guy that told some good stories 2,000 years ago, if that's all He is, then surely we are hopeless. There is no hope, there is no meaning, there's no security. If there's just life storms and nothing else, then surely life itself is meaningless. And many philosophers over the hundreds of years, especially since the Enlightenment, have come to this conclusion... That if there is no God, and Nietzsche was very famous for saying this, there is no God, and immediately, because of his mental ability and his ability to think through things very deeply, hopelessness starts filling in. The boat starts filling in with hopelessness. And if you don't have hope, you've got nothing. But if Jesus is there, but well, then we've got to be really honest even though there might be mega calm available to us, number three, we have to understand that not only is there detailed power, that there is calming power, a higher power, but also it's an uncontrollable power. Verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So let's just be really real and honest with one another just for a second. If you're a Christian, you've felt this. That you feel like there's a storm. You feel like the trouble is rising. And you feel like you are sinking. And let's just be really honest with one another. We have felt like God is asleep. He's unaware. Or worse, He is aware and doesn't care. It feels like God is asleep. Like, you've gone to sleep in my hour of need. If you really loved me, Why would this storm be here? If you really loved me, why would there be an uncontrollable, unbeatable storm in my life right now? If you really loved me, why is this person doing this to me? Why is this financial situation upon me? Why is this uh, challenge constantly battering itself against me? Why is this sin constantly pulling me down? If you really loved me. And then we switch on the TV. We put the radio on. And you know my feelings about some Christian radios not all. I got into trouble last time I said this. So not all Christian radio, some Christian radio makes me really angry. And the reason is this, is because we are constantly fueled with the idea that the Christian life does not include storms. And if you have a storm, it's your lack of faith. And if you just repeated the scripture, some like, some magical mantra, then God's faith and God will come into your life and will change your circumstances and make you rich and take all your uh, sickness and all your troubles away. And we can all skip off into the horizon holding hands through the daisies that's what you'd be told and it is absolutely anti-christian nonsense because there is nothing in the scripture that suggests that that is true What is in the scripture is that when uncontrollable storms come into our life, when the storms come, that we are not alone in the storm, that it might feel like he's asleep, but we know that he is still there, supremely confident. Not only is the uncontrollable storm present, the uncontrollable God is there. And in verse 40, he said, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And in verse 41, it goes, and they were filled with great fear. Like, the calm has come, the storm has gone, and now they're even more afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the uncontrollable storm that has no love or respect for mankind in it has disappeared, but they find what is the uncontrollable God even more fearful. Why were we afraid? Maybe it wasn't just about the storm waves. Maybe it's just understanding this, that Jesus does allow people he loves to go through uncontrollable storms. Because Jesus has infinitely more uncontrollable power. He has infinitely more uncontrollable power. Jesus is uncontrollable and we don't like that. We get overtaken by the uncontrollable storm without realizing and we're forgetting that Jesus is an uncontrollable God and He doesn't do what we want Him to do when, he does, when we want Him to do it. He actually will allow people to go through uncontrollable storms. And He still loves us. Jesus has infinitely more uncontrollable power and we don't like that. We like the idea of it But when it comes to our circumstance, because the circumstance feels uncontrolling, we have an idea of what things should look like. And if God really loved me, this wouldn't be happening. That's our frame of reference. That's our paradigm. That's our hope. Whereas it feels like Jesus is asleep in the stern, but he is uncontrollably powerful. He knows what to do, when to do it. He lets things happen we don't understand. He doesn't do things according to our plan. He is God and we are not. One of the most significant stories, in fact, the oldest written book in the Bible is Job. And you can read the story of Job, and Job, it's fair to say, went through some terrible circumstances in his life. that I'm not going to go into great detail, but circumstances that, you know, when we say we're having a Job moment, we then read Job and realize, no, we're not having a Job moment because Job moment is horrendous. And then at the end, and I've said this before, but I think it's worth reminding because I know that I think about this often, is right at the end, there comes these chapters where there's a description of God now speaking to Job. And I'm paraphrasing, but essentially God says this to Job, yes, you did go through those challenges and those difficulties, but but, you see, were you there when I created the world, Job? Were Were you present when I just breathed all this into being? And then he goes through this incredible statement of reminding Job who he is. And here's what's incredible to me. He never once gives Job a reason for the storm. Just doesn't do it. Job will find out in eternity, but never once will he get clarity from God as to why the uncontrollable storm comes. All God does is remind Job that he's an uncontrollable God. And he can speak peace and he can speak calm into situations Unlike the storm, Jesus' unmanageable, uncontrollable power is filled with love for us. And he tells, basically, he says this to the disciples, have faith in my love for you. But you see, how do we actually apply this to our everyday life? This is, this is fine to say, well, yeah, I get the uncontrollable storm. Yeah, I, I get that Jesus is uncontrollable. How does this help me Today, it's hard to understand, it's hard to believe when this storm is actually happening around me. Well, I want to point out to you as I bring this to a close that they, have, they, they, they we have something they don't have. In our boat, in our storm, in our filling up and sinking, we have something they don't have. Something really fascinating about Mark's account is it's almost mirror for mirror in the way he writes it like Jonah if you read the account of Jonah, what you're going to see is that Jesus and Jonah are, are out at sea in a boat. That Jesus and Jonah's boat are both overtaken by a storm. This description of the storm that Mark gives is almost identical to the one that we see, read in Jonah. Jesus and Jonah are both asleep in the storm. The sailors come to the sleep and say, we are perishing. The word perishing is almost identical to the word that Mark uses. In both cases, there's this miraculous intervention by God and calmness comes. And in both stories, the last thing we read is that the sailors are even more afraid after the calm than they were before it. But there's one difference. See, Jonah says to the sailors, there's one thing you need to do. If I perish, if you throw me over the side, then you will live. But Jesus doesn't get thrown over the side of the boat in Mark's account because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, I am the true Jonah, a greater than Jonah is here. That's how Jesus talks about himself. Why? Because he calms the sea and the storm and the winds in a way that Jonah never did. He saved his disciples and he saves us. He's saying that one day, and we can have hope in this, that He's going to calm all the uncontrollable storms. That He's going to still all the seas. He's going to destroy all destruction. He's going to break all brokenness. And it's all going to happen on the cross. And so if you like, this is Jesus on the cross. is the equivalent of Jesus being thrown overboard into the storm. And on the cross, He's going to destroy death itself. So all storms are going to get calmed by Jesus because He is a greater than Jonah. Jesus, greater than Jonah, is here. And that leads us to the final point. There's a costly power because when Jesus was on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm. The waves of sin and death, which, by the way, are the only waves that can truly sink you. See, Jesus turned into the ultimate storm of eternal justice. He took all the storm of the punishment that you and I truly deserve. He didn't flinch. He put his head and he bowed into it. And he took the storm that we all truly deserve. The storm of sin and death. And by through that, we find the freedom that we need to actually live life through the storms that we physically experience and that we mentally experience that there is a higher hope because Jesus, who loved us so much, to go through that on the cross, as we're going to celebrate over the next couple of weeks, He loves us so much that He was on the cross and thrown into the ultimate storm for us. That He loved us that much. Then He loves us that much now. And even though it might feel that He's asleep, He's not asleep. More likely, like the disciples in the garden, we're asleep on Him. That we fall asleep we fall asleep. He did not abandon you in the ultimate storm of sin and death. He will not abandon you in the storm that you're feeling today. That's the reality of the cross. So how do we appropriate that into our lives? That when the storm feels like it's raging, how do we fix our attention upon the one who is uncontrollable, the one who loves us so much that he would die for us, the one who took sin and death and killed it itself. The one who came and gave us life and life to the full. How do we appropriate that into our lives on a day to day basis when it feels like life is just filling up and we're drowning? Well, we turn to his word. We sing the songs. We pray. We get into biblical community. We do the simple, ordinary, grace filled things in our lives. And what you'll find is that calmness comes. Now, it could be that the storm just gets taken away immediately, and praise God for that. But oftentimes, it feels like the storm rages for a long, long time. And we need to remember that even if the ultimate storm comes upon us and life itself is taken away, then we still have that eternal hope that the world has no answer for. There's a hope that is found in the storm. He is not asleep. It is us who falls asleep on Him. So as we look to the cross, as we look to His sacrifice, as we look to the ultimate flinging into the storm, if you like, then we can find hope in that. That as Christians, we can be reminded of that. And as people who are trying to figure out what you believe, my question, gently and lovingly, but firmly is this, where do you place your hope in the middle of the storm? Where does where do you run to? And has it proved itself to be sufficient? Because you could say friends or money or health, circumstances, all of which is in our control to a certain extent. And when those things go, what then? Whereas Jesus says, I will never fall asleep. I'm always awake for you. Have faith in the love that I have for you do, you. do you have that? Christian friends, do you remind yourself of that? That even though it feels like it's uncontrollable, we serve a powerful and uncontrollable God. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that we need a revelation of wisdom and understanding, so that we can have an intimate knowledge of you. And Father, I, I know more than ever right now, as I have spoken this word, that these are deeply troubling and challenging truths. But Father, it's so difficult to remember in the midst of an uncontrollable storm, that you are with us. When the storm feels like it's overtaking us. So Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you right now. That Father, those who are in the room who are struggling with the storm, that God, that you would whisper to them And remind them that you never left. That you love them. That you cry with them. That even though this is difficult, that there is hope. That you destroy death itself and you will calm this sea as well. And that Father, I pray that we as Christians we would live with a deep security and understanding, there is hope. And that, Lord, that we would not fall asleep. That, God, that we would press into this truth, that we would sing it, that we would read it, we would talk about it, we would pray it through, we would meditate on it. That, God, we'd put our attention and we'd make it ultimate in our lives, that you are a God of grace. And that Jesus, that you died and you rose again for your love for us and your obedience to the will of the Father. Lord, let that be our present reality. Praise your name, Lord. Father, for those in the room who aren't sure what they believe. God, I pray you would do only that which you can do, which is draw them to yourself. And they find great security in the Lord of the storm. You would speak calmness. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. You know, God's word says that my grace is sufficient for you that His strength and power shown and made perfect in weakness. But Lord, we declare we're weak. Give us that revelation, Lord. Thank you, Father.